All right, two weeks to finish 1 John. So let's dive into it. We've got two weeks to finish chapter 5. So 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 tonight. This book is about having fellowship with God. John, the closest of the Lord's disciples, the one who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, the one who was at the foot of the cross the day that Jesus died, whom Jesus said to John, take care of of my mother Mary. Uh, This is the John that wrote 1 John. And he wrote the Gospel of John to tell us how to have a relationship with God. He writes 1 John to tell us how to have fellowship with God. And as we've said throughout this study, there is a difference between relationship and fellowship. I can have a relationship with somebody, even in an earthly way, and not have fellowship with them. Because fellowship is defined as being on the same page, of the same mindset, working towards the same common goal, or moving in the same direction. And so with that said, that's why in 1 John chapter 5, as he reintroduces this whole concept of what does it mean to then be in fellowship with God, the thing he's going to focus on here tonight is that you and I, in order to be in fellowship with God, we need to think as God thinks. We need to see things from God's perspective. We need to be brought over to God's way of thinking so that we work in concert with God, so that there is a continuity of our lives and we're not like pulling in one direction where where God is leading us in another. And the reason I say that is I just want to read the first verse to you of 1 John chapter 5 where John writes, Everyone or anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been fathered by God and everyone who loves the Father loves the child fathered by Him. The word fathered in my translation is the Greek word genao. It means to bring one over to another way of thinking. In other words, that's what God wants to do. He's not only interested, obviously, in delivering us or saving us from our sins and, and giving us an eternal home in heaven and all of that, but He wants to, throughout our life of walking with Him and fellowship with Him, bring us over to a new way of thinking because God understands that if I see things from His perspective, if I'm brought to understand things as He sees it, it's going to be better for me. And so God is always wanting me to come over to His way of thinking. And John's going to talk a lot about that tonight in 1 John chapter 5. In fact, he starts out even before that by saying, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been fathered by God. The word believe there is a word that speaks about a conviction that leads my life or guides my life and changes my life. In other words, the Bible doesn't understand any kind of belief that doesn't affect the way I live. You can't find that kind of belief in the Bible. That's why uh, someone, you know, from God's perspective to say that, you know, well, I know God or I believe in God and I love God and yet they totally in their life just somehow divorce or compartmentalize the way they're living from what they say God's word, that, that's foreign, that's a foreign concept. Because God says that if I truly believe something, if it is a conviction of mine, 
then it's going to guide my life and it's going to change the way I live. So I guess a question that all of us really needs to ask ourselves at this point is we need to talk about what do we believe? What do you and I believe? This, the end of 2009, coming into the Christmas season, where we're in the midst of it, what do we believe? What beliefs and convictions brought us through 2009 and what beliefs and convictions are going to take me into 2010 and carry me through this very uncertain year? Because we don't know what this next year is going to bring. It's important that we have beliefs and convictions. In fact, I know I'm saddened. I can only imagine how much God is saddened by the fact that sometimes I feel that we're living in a culture, we're living in an age, we're living in a world where a lot of people don't believe in anything anymore. They they just really don't. You know, especially believing in something so strong that they would be willing to die for it. Or, or be willing to believe in something so strongly that it totally changes the way they live their life. That, that's what John is saying here. And that's what God wants us to see. That this whole idea of believing in God is not just something that I, I say with my lips. It's not just something that I, I send to. It, it is literally something so strong that every area of my life begins to become affected by it. And my life is never the same. And my life will never go in the same direction. And my life will be always guided by these beliefs. And the main belief, obviously, here that John is zeroing in on is that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah. The Anointed One. The Son of God. If I really believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, who the Bible reveals Him to be, John is saying, God is saying, my life will be guided by that truth and my life will be changed every day by that truth. What do we believe tonight? And have we begun the process of growing and understanding the mind of God revealed in the Word of God to where God is now able to bring us over to a new way of thinking. That that we see things a different way because now we're seeing things from not our perspective and not the world's perspective, but now we're seeing things from God's perspective. Which is why he goes on to say in verse 1, If I see things from God's perspective, as we talked about last week, then I realize that the one who has been fathered by God will also not only love the Father, but love God's children as well. As we said, from God's perspective, from God's mind, you can't separate the two. If I'm hurting a fellow Christian, I'm hurting Christ. As we said last week, God puts us all into the body of Christ. We're all in Christ as Christians. So if I'm over here saying, I love you, Christ, I love you, Jesus, and yet we're hurting a Christian, we're really stabbing Christ. At the same time, we're saying, I love Christ. And God's Word says, that's not the way God looks at it. 
God sees us that if we truly love the Father, then we're going to love the child fathered by Him. And we're going to see our brothers and sisters in Christ in a different way if we're seeing them through the eyes of Christ. In fact, in a sense, the glasses, if you will, that God puts on us when we become a Christian and begin to grow and see things from God's perspective literally does color everyone that we see whether they're Christians or non-Christians, that we are to see everyone through God's eyes. In fact, we're even to see ourselves through God's eyes. But many times we don't. And that's what God wants to do. Maybe even here tonight, God wants to begin to work in our hearts and minds tonight to the point where we will begin to look at ourselves even the way God sees us. And that we will look at others the way God sees them as well. Notice verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. Whenever we love God and obey His commandments. Notice here that a couple things. that, That God is saying from my perspective, from my way of thinking, again, all of life ties together. That even though you and I try to compartmentalize life and say, well, here's my God part of my life and then here's my part where I can do whatever I want to do, God doesn't look at life that way. See, because God wants to continue to bring my life into what I call harmony, where everything is complementing everything else and where everything is in harmony with everything else. Which is why, notice in verse 2, he says, So we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. Three different things, but they're all working in harmony. I love God. I love the children of God. I, I obey His commands. It's all in harmony. See, when we see things from God's perspective, then we understand that's what God's trying to build into my life, is a life of harmony. Because God understands. That when my life has a, an aspect of it that is in dissonance, if you will, or out of harmony with the rest of my life, that's bad for me. God wants to bring my life into a, a continuity, a, a harmony. So I have to ask myself this question as I got to this point in the passage. Is there something in my life that's out of harmony with the other parts of my life? And if so, then I need to take responsibility for it, admit it, own it, ask God to help me to bring whatever area of my life is out of harmony with the other areas in harmony so that my life is harmonious. Because God is going to teach me in the Bible that a life of harmony is a life of power, a life of energy, a life of vitality, that, that from God's perspective, When you and I either try to play games, pretend that we're something we're not, have a a secret life, if you will, and try to portray ourselves over here as something that we're not, that takes a lot more energy. Eventually, time and truth walk hand in hand, and it catches up with us. And we've certainly heard about that kind of life in the media lately. Not going to mention any names. But the whole idea is that that, that, that is an exhausting life. 
that, that is a life that will wear us out and weigh us down. Because it's almost like even like an automobile or a car not running on, on everything, that it, it, it's, it's missing something. There's something out there, and so the car is not operating at full efficiency. God is saying the same thing about our lives. He's trying to bring everything into harmony. He's trying to work everything to, to a down the same path. And, and when we're walking with God and He's bringing different things in harmony, then, in a sense, we're, we're humming. It, it's almost like, you know, right now, obviously, football season. It, it would be just like a football team getting in a huddle and basically saying, you know, each of the 11 guys on the football team is going to go out after they break the huddle and just do whatever they want to do. Well, that wouldn't work. They have to be all working together in harmony. They each have a specific assignment. And if they don't carry out that assignment, if the line, the receivers, the backs, the quarterback, if they don't each carry out that assignment, then the play doesn't work. Because there's no continuity. There's no harmony. They're all not working in the same direction to the same goal. That's what God wants to bring into our lives. And that's why he's continually trying to bring us over to his way of thinking about things. And why getting into the Bible, learning the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible is so important. Because there's no other better way for us on this side of heaven to learn the mind of God and to know what God is thinking than to get into the Bible. This is why he gave it to us. Is your life in harmony? And if not... Many times our lives are not. There's something out there that's not in harmony with the rest of my life. God can bring it into harmony. Ask Him to help. He will. And He'll give you the roadmap that you need to bring your life all into harmony together. For notice in verse 3, He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. See, again, God says there's, there's a lot of folks down through history who claim they love me. But the love isn't being fleshed out in keeping his commandments, in, in following his principles, in living his precepts. They are in disharmony. Over here, they're claiming to everyone and even maybe convincing themselves, I love God. But they're not even interested in what God has said. They're not interested in what His instructions of life are. They're not interested in knowing what God has to say about how to live life. And so God says, no, that's not in harmony. And the word keep there, in verse 3, is a word that means to attend to carefully. It's more than even just uh, you know, God, I'm listening to you. I'm following your instructions. There's even an attitude before I even know what God has said about something to want to know it. it. If you ever wanted to get a glimpse of someone who was at this point where they were, they were in love with God's word, they couldn't wait to hear what God had to say and whatever, read Psalm 119. Now, it'll take you a while. Because Psalm 119 is the biggest, if you will, chapter in the Bible. And it's in the biggest book of the Bible, Psalms. 
And I don't think it's an accident that the biggest chapter in the Bible, in the biggest book of the Bible, is about someone's love for the Word of God. That's what the whole psalm is about, all hundred and some verses. It's a long psalm. But David, throughout that psalm, the one who wrote the psalm, I mean, he's continually saying, oh God, I don't know what I'd do without your Word. I don't know how I'd navigate a day without your word. I can't wait to get up and get into your word. I think about your word all day long. I love your, I can't wait to learn something else from your word. I mean, this is the attitude that John is meaning when he says, not just that we keep his commandments, but this is the attitude that we take care of God, that that we, we want to know what God has to say and that we are looking at it carefully and thinking about it all day long. Psalm 1 would be another good psalm. Blessed is the man who meditates upon God's Word day and night. That's what the word keep means in verse 3. Do you and I have that kind of attitude towards the Word? Well, I'll, I'll say this. If you're here on a Tuesday night after working all day or whatever, you got it more than a lot of folks do. And I appreciate that, and so does God, that you folks come out so faithfully on Tuesday night when you could very easily go home and just relax for the evening and you take time out of your schedule to be here to attend to carefully the Word of the Lord. He takes notice of that. And he will bless you for it. Notice what John goes on to say about his, his principles, his precepts, his commandments. And his commandments do not weigh us down. The phrase weigh us down literally means to become burdensome or that they're unreasonable. See, the the Bible basically says God's instructions for life, God's principles for living, God's precepts to enjoy life, God's commandments, if you will, are never unreasonable and they're never burdensome. If I feel like somehow by becoming a committed Christian that I end up putting this huge weight on my back, I've got to, again, a different concept than what God has. Because God's way of thinking is that when He looks at the commands that He's given us, they're not commands that weigh us down. They're actually, as we sang today, they're commands that set us free. They're commands that lighten the load and the burden. They're the commands that took the sin burden away and the guilt away. And they're uniquely uh, fitted to us so that even the responsibilities that God calls us to if we're doing what God is asking us to do in the way that God wants it done by the power that God gives us, then it's not going to be weighty or burdensome. That's why I think for any of us as Christians, when our ministry, if you will, and our service for God begins to get like a weight that we're carrying around, we need to stop and take a time out and check out What's going on? Because if we're following God's commands, God says they do not weigh us down. They should never become burdensome or they're never unreasonable. In fact, keep your finger there. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus also talks about this. Matthew chapter 11, the very last three verses of Matthew 11. 
verses 28, 29, and 30. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus is calling upon people who feel weighted and burdened and burned out. And Jesus says, if you will come to me, yes, I will give you a yoke. But this yoke that I will give you is a uniquely well-fitted responsibility that will not burden you and will not weigh you down. It will fulfill you. It will satisfy you. It will free you. That's what Jesus' yoke is. So notice Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. See, I think as Christians we need to examine ourselves if we're in places in our life where we feel like following God has become burdensome or a weight there's something wrong there, and it's not what God intended. God, Maybe we're doing something or we're involved in something that God never asked us to get involved. Maybe we're taking on more responsibility than God is asking us to take on. And maybe that's why we feel the weight and the burden. It's because we're taking on more than God is asking. And maybe when we do even take on the responsibility that God is calling us to, are we doing it in our own strength? Or are we doing it in the strength that God wants to supply? And are we doing it in the way God wants it done? You see, if we're doing what God calls us to in the way God wants it done, with the power that God will give us, then Jesus himself said, it's not going to burden you or weigh you down. That's God's way of looking at it. That's why even today, there's really, I call it this, a sickness even in the church. And when I use that term, I'm not just talking about Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. I'm talking about the church general. There's a sickness in the church that, that, that I think the, that even Christians have gotten caught up into because of our culture that busyness equals spiritualness. No. Sometimes the most spiritual thing I can do is take a day off. Sometimes the most spiritual thing I can do is rest and relax. Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing. I've got to learn that when I'm following God and I'm on the same page with God, God doesn't expect my life to be this weight that, yeah, I'm a Christian. Boy, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Won't you follow me and join me in this happy throng? Come on, you know. Wow. Yeah. Well, it'll get better when we finally get to heaven, but yeah, right now it's just, you know. No. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we've got to, again, come over to God's way of thinking about these things. Because when we do, see, life becomes, not only does it bring harmony to my life, but my life becomes more manageable. When Christians feel like their life is out of control and unmanageable, that's not coming from God. Jesus himself said, my yoke is easy to bear, my burden is light. 
My commandments are not there to weigh us down. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, here, let's simplify life. Let's make it more manageable. Here's the one thing, Jeff, that you as a Christian need to focus on. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those other things that you occupy yourself with, they'll fall in line. There you go, Jeff. That's making life manageable. We spend, even as Christians, so much time thinking about the 180 other things and not focusing on the one thing that God has called us to focus on, which is to seek Him and His kingdom and His righteousness. And Jesus is simply saying there that if I, Jeff Royce, would just focus on what God has called me to do and to come over to his way of thinking and looking at life, my life would not only come into harmony, my life would be much more manageable than it is most of the days. That's why then he can go on in verse 4 to say this. Because everyone who has been fathered by God and comes over to the way God is looking at things and thinking of things conquers the world. Literally, the Greek word is nikau. There's another word that he's going to use here in a minute that you're familiar with. It's the Greek word nike, where we get that popular shoe company, Nike. It's a good word for a shoe company. I'm wearing conquerors today. Got my conquerors on, my Nikes. It's what the word means in the Greek language. And literally this word in verse 4 was a word used in the sports of that day speaking about an athlete who poured themselves out on the field and then was carried off the field victorious. And God is simply saying that, that you and I, if we'll just come over to His way of thinking, our life is going to reflect more victory than defeat. Our life will be more in harmony than dissonance. Our life will be much more manageable than unmanageable if we'll just come over to His way of thinking. Because everyone, He says, who's been fathered by God conquers the world. We are carried off the field victorious. Here's a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you and I really believe that, if that's our conviction, then that's going to guide our life and change the way we live. Now, keep your finger there back in 1 John and go back to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. And, and the reason I will share this with you, just a short personal testimony, Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. The, the reason why this passage of Scripture is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because it was one of the, and is still one of the most meaningful passages of Scripture in my life. This was the passage, these were the verses that God used in my life to get me to say, yes, I'll go into the ministry and become a pastor. In fact, to just share with you a little bit of the background that I was coming home from college during the summers and I was basically teaching our youth group at my home church. And I would pick out different passages of Scripture. I wasn't going through just a book of the Bible that summer. 
And I came to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and read it a couple times, and tried to do my own little study on it, and then went in Sunday morning and taught the youth group in my home church these verses. And when I went home that afternoon, God broke me over those verses. Because God basically pointed out in Jeff Royce's life, Jeff, how can you get up in front of those 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old young people and encourage them to present their body a living sacrifice and basically surrender their bodies, their minds, and their wills to me whenever you haven't done it first. Yeah, God, you're right. And I spent that whole afternoon really just weeping and talking to God and coming over to God's way of thinking. I ran from God for nine years. I knew, many of you have heard this, I knew when I was 12 years old that God wanted me to be a pastor. In fact, I preached my first sermon in a church when I was 12 years old. For nine years, I ran from what God wanted me to do, and I was miserable. But when I finally came over to God's way of thinking, that burden and weight that I placed on myself through running from God was lifted. Never been the same since. And it's all been good. Not easy, but good. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, therefore, and obviously that goes back to the first 11 chapters. Paul has laid a foundation for what he's about to say, but for the sake of time, we're not going to read all 11 chapters of Romans. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't miss verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. It literally means don't allow the world to put you into its mold. Don't let, don't let the world philosophy and the way the world thinks put you into their mold. But basically let God alone be the one to define your life. Which is why then it's very necessary, Paul goes on here in Romans 12 too, to say, but be transformed. Be metamorphosized. Go from the larva to the eventual butterfly. Let God transform you and I from the inside out. How? By the renewing of your mind. And that is a continual thing. That as a Christian, I need to come before God and allow Him to continually renew my mind. To bring me over, as John is saying in 1 John 5, to His way of thinking, to His perspective, to His way of looking at life. So that you and I may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. See, there's basically three things that Paul is saying here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That God is asking you and I to present our bodies to Him, to present our minds to Him, and to present our wills to Him. And this is after salvation. In fact, even in my own life, I've 
I've had to go through this Romans 12, 1 and 2 several times. And I, I just felt impressed with the Spirit of God to share this tonight because it certainly goes along with this whole renewing of our mind and being brought over to God's way of thinking. But I just felt impressed to share this because I just thought, and I don't want to take for granted that maybe you're here tonight and that's something that no one has ever even encouraged you to do. Yeah, you're saved, your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven, but have you ever went through Romans 12, 1 and 2, and basically there's come a time in your life after salvation where you, in a sense, crawled up on that altar as a living sacrifice and said to God, God, here's my body, here's my mind, here's my will, it's yours. I think it's healthy for us to do that. In fact, I think it's absolutely necessary that we do that. Now, it would be nice if at whatever point we got to that we did that as a Christian, that we never had to do it again because the language is sort of a a once and for all presentation. But the problem with a living sacrifice is a living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. And that's where I've been in my life, where I crawled on the altar. I said, God, here's my body, here's my mind, here's my will. And then somewhere along the line, I crawled back off and started to take control of my life and started to try to run my own life. And then when things started to go south again, and I came over to God's way of thinking and realized, you know, His way is best and His life that He has for me is is best then, God, I'm going to crawl back up on that altar and die to self again and give you my body, my mind, and my will. So I just feel like tonight I I just wanted to offer that. Because maybe there's even just one person here tonight that maybe the Spirit of God is saying to you for the very first time in your Christian life, now's the time. And maybe God's not calling you to ministry to be a missionary or something, but maybe maybe there's just an area of your life out of harmony with the other areas of your life. And God is saying, I want that area. Would you surrender that area to me? Or maybe it's right now your life just seems so unmanageable and you just seem like every day you get up that your life is just so overwhelming And God is screaming at you tonight, in a sense, saying, My yoke is easy to bear. My my burden is light to carry. My commandments are not to be burdensome, and they're definitely not unreasonable. So maybe there's some kind of shifting or changes that need to be made. And maybe part of it is that the reason my life is unmanageable is I'm living for me, or I'm living for someone else, but I'm not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, obviously, I, I don't want to play God in your life. But I feel very much impressed to bring this passage before you all tonight here, the second to last mine of the year. And maybe one of the things all of us can do at the end of 2009 before 2010 ever comes is at least start off 2010, at least with all of us up on the altar to begin with. 
Yeah, maybe at some point in 2010 we'll crawl back off, but it would be good to at least start 2010. All of us up on the altar saying, God, my body is yours, my will is yours, my mind is yours. And I will continually do everything I can to to allow you to transform my mind by a continual renewal. I'm willing to come over to your way of thinking, God. Back to 1 John. Let's close this out tonight. Look at verse, the end of verse 4. So then he goes on to say, this is the conquering power. Again, Greek word, Nike or Nike. This is the victory. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world. Well, what is it? Our faith, our absolute convictions, It is a word, that word at the end of verse 4 is very, very similar to the word up in verse 1, believe. One in the Greek language is the word pistuo, the other one is pistis. Very close together. Belief, faith. It all comes down to a conviction that guides my life and changes my life. My absolute convictions. Obviously in the context concerning Jesus Christ, concerning God, concerning what God has said. But ultimately, that's what enables me to conquer the world. And when he uses that phrase, conquering the world, he's simply saying that you and I, through God, through what God has said, can overcome anything that seeks to come between us and God. And between enjoying the life that God has for us. And becoming all that God created us to be. There is nothing that can stand in our way when we come over to God's way of thinking. And our convictions about Jesus Christ and who He is, is what is guiding my life. Then I will conquer life. Instead of allowing life to conquer me and become unmanageable. And this is the life. That God wants us all to enjoy. Again, it's not just a life that begins when we get to heaven after we die or the rapture takes place. God wants me to begin to live this kind of life and enjoy this kind of life right here and now. Are those the words you would use to describe your life? Is it a life of victory? Or is it a life of defeat? Is it a life of conquering and a life of power? Is it a life that's becoming more and more manageable and more and more in harmony? Or is it a life that's wearing you out and weighing you down and overwhelming? And God is saying to all of us tonight, my child, it doesn't have to be that way. Life doesn't have to be that way. Jesus says, Just keep your eyes focused on me and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All those other things will find their proper place if we just keep ourselves focused on God. That's why he goes on to say in verse 5, as he keeps just hammering this home. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you and I have the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God, 
and we have confidence in Jesus, the Son of God, then, and we believe that we are in Jesus, Jesus is in us, that we have Him by our side, we have all the resources of God, that Jesus and in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. In Him the fullness of deity dwells. If we believe that, if that is our conviction, then what can you and I face in this world that you and Jesus cannot overcome together? There is nothing, folks. We are more than conquerors through Him who died for us and loves us. That's why in verse 6, John begins to lay down this whole foundation about how clear the revelation about who Jesus is has been. How, how clear God has said to the world who Jesus is so that it's not like, well, I, you know, I don't have a clue. Because in verse 6, he begins to talk about, in a sense, the witnesses, if you will, that God has given that, that affirms who Jesus is, and provides solid evidence of who he is, what he can do, what he's all about. So he says in verse 6, Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And, and basically there's, there's obviously differences of opinion on what the witness of water and blood is, most people understand, well, when the Spirit came, He certainly witnessed that Jesus Christ is God. But whatever you come to the conclusion that the witness of water and blood and even maybe the Spirit is, the primary point that the Spirit of God is making in this passage is that there was a unity and a continuity of God's revelation concerning His Son Jesus. That everything was in agreement, which is exactly what he says in verse 8. The Spirit and the water and the blood, these three are in agreement. These three are one. Just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are three distinct persons, but they are one God. He's saying here, as these witnesses came on to history... The Spirit, the water, and the blood. They were three distinct witnesses, but yet they were all agreeing as to who Jesus was. He is the Son of God. Which is what the context is, because in verse 5 he says, Who's the one who's conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And all these witnesses came at some point basically to say, Yep, that's who he is. He's the Son of God. Believe him. Now I have my own idea of the water and the blood. And since we have a little bit of time tonight, before we have to close, let's go and look at these real quickly. Now, the reason I chose the Gospel of John is John wrote 1 John. So one of the things to me when you're thinking about Bible interpretation and putting pieces together is if you're looking at a book that a guy, a particular author wrote, and he wrote another book of the Bible that maybe one of the things that can help us determine what he's talking about can be found in one of his other writings. So go with me to the Gospel of John that John also wrote, to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Yeah, John, that's after Luke. Okay, here we go. And I want to begin reading in verse 26. 
John, now this isn't the John who wrote the book, this is John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 26. John answered and, and said, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not recognize, who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These things happened in Bethany across the Jordan River where John was baptizing. By the way, what do you need to baptize with? Water. On the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, After he comes, a man who is greater than I am because he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he could be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss verse 34. I have both seen and testified that this is the man, and this man is the chosen one of God. See, I think that was one of the witnesses. One of the witnesses that actually tied water, baptism, and the Spirit descending all at the same time. And then go with me to the Gospel of John chapter 19. We have to get the blood in there, so we go to the crucifixion. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. After this, Jesus, realizing that by this time everything was completed, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop and lifted it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was an especially important one, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the victim's legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with Jesus, first the one and then the other. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And blood and water flowed out immediately. And the person who saw it has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. See, these I think are very important witnesses to who Jesus is. This was the spirit and the water and the blood at different times of Jesus' life and ministry where it was very evident that this is no ordinary man, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And if we believe, if this is our conviction, then that conviction should guide and change my life forever. Bring my life into harmony. Make my life more manageable. Allow me to conquer life rather than life conquering me. What do I believe? What are my convictions? For notice, back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. We'll wrap it up here in just a few moments. 
If we accept the testimony of men, John says, the testimony of God is greater. It should carry more weight. And folks, we still accept the testimony of people. That's what our whole court system is based on. Eyewitness testimony or testimony about things, those things are still admissible in court. People are still judged by human testimony. And God says, if you're going to take the testimony of a human being to make decisions and base judgments, how much more should you and I listen to the testimony of God himself concerning Jesus Christ? Because he says, this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son. And the one who believes in the Son of God, who places his confidence in the Son of God, has even this testimony in himself. You see, once we believe, we have an abiding, eternal witness inside of ourselves. But don't miss the end of verse 10. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. See, that's the reality of unbelief. That's why unbelief is no small thing because from God's perspective now, again, from God's way of looking at it, from God's way of thinking, if you don't believe in what I, God, have said about my son Jesus Christ, you're calling me a liar. That's pretty serious. That's why unbelief of Jesus Christ is no small thing. Because when we cut it all down and simplify it, basically it's either I believe in what God has said about Jesus or I don't. And if I don't, according to God, from God's perspective, from God's way of thinking, we're calling God a liar because we're basically saying, I don't believe Jesus is God. Even though God has went out of his way to make this testimony about his son very, very clear, multiple testimonies. As Luke said in Luke 1, many infallible proofs, folks. The question is not, could God have been clear concerning his testimony about Jesus? The question is simply, will we believe? But I love this. We'll end on this upbeat note. Go down to verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. But notice, this life is only in His Son. And remember, eternal life in the Bible is not a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. It is a fulfilling, abundant, more than physical existence life. And God is saying the only way this life can be found, the only way this life can be enjoyed is when you and I come over to my way, God's way of thinking and see Jesus for who he is and believe in him and have our convictions upon him and have our confidence in him. When we live that way, we will not only conquer the world, but we'll experience life on a whole other level than we've ever experienced it up to that point. Because he goes on to say very simply, and these are words that a child could understand. The one who has the Son has this eternal life. 
present possession. I don't have to wait till I die to find out whether I go to heaven or not. If I've got the Son, I already possess eternal life. But the one who does not have the Son of God does not have this eternal life. I mean, they're physically existing. And they can enjoy life to a certain level. But God says, the life that I intended for human beings to enjoy, the the life that I created them to have, the, the life that I desire for them to have, can only be found in a relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not just to be a part of my life. He is to be my life. That's why Paul said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus isn't just to be something that we tack on to our life. That he's sort of that extra. Yeah, my life is this, this, and this, and this, but yeah, I got Jesus too. From God's perspective, from God's way of looking at life, from God's way of thinking, Jesus Christ is to be my life. What are our convictions? What really, really do we believe? Where's our confidence? Is it in Jesus, the Son of God? If so, folks, I guarantee you, you'll experience life like you've never experienced it before. And maybe, just maybe tonight, the step that we need to take, if we've never taken it before, is to go through that Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we say to God, God, I've been a Christian for a year, five years, ten years, thirty years, but I've never truly presented myself to you as a living sacrifice. I've never truly crawled up on that altar and said, God, here's my body, here's my mind, here's my will. I surrender it all to you, God. Here am I. Do with my life whatever pleases you and brings honor to you. And if that's what you need to do tonight, I just encourage you to be obedient to the Spirit of God. Don't be like I was for so many years, running from God, thinking that I knew how my life could be best for me, that I could run my life better than God, that I knew what would fulfill and satisfy me more than God did. And I had to come to a place in my life at 21 years of age where I was broken before God and where I said, finally, God, I surrender. I surrender all. I'm crawling up on that altar. I'm giving my whole life to you. I guarantee you, if that's a step that you want to take and you need to take, you'll never regret it a day in your life. Because the life that God has for you is the best life you and I could ever experience on this side of glory. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, God, for loving us so much that you have clearly 
revealed these things to us. Things that, Lord, aren't really hard to grasp and understand. But things sometimes that we wrestle with only because it's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of wanting to. It's a matter of our will. God, sometimes that's the last thing we give you. And yet Jesus, when he taught us to pray, taught us to pray not our will, but your will, God, be done. So God, tonight, as we enter into this very special time of year and into this Advent season and into this celebration of you, the God of the universe, coming to earth as a baby to reveal this life to us, God, we have a lot to celebrate. We, we have a lot to live for. God, help us to do it at the very highest level. And we'll give you the glory, Lord, for using our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I love you. Have a great week. See you back here next Tuesday.